This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. This is your host, Tim Link, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. My special guest is author and veterinarian Susie Fincham Gray. And Susie's going to talk to us about her uh, latest release book, uh, My Patients and Other Animals veterinarian stories of love loss and hope so very intriguing book very interesting perspective from Susie uh, who's a well-known veterinarian but also a great uh, great writer in her own right so we'll talk to Susie about that as well so it's gonna be a great show everybody uh, just hang tight we'll come back right after these commercial breaks you're listening to animal rights on pet life radio You know that feeling when you go to clean the litter box and it's a complete disaster? Yeah, we've got you covered. Introducing World's Best Cat Litter Zero Mess, the advanced litter that gives you two times better clumping and more odor control with less litter. Zero Mess combines the concentrated power of corn with super-absorbent plant fibers. Translation, scoop once and you're done. Find it at a pet store near you and save $2. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Joining me now is author and veterinarian Susie Fincham Gray. Susie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. We appreciate it. And uh, the latest book, or the new book, first book, I guess, out, it's called <laughs> My Patients and Other Animals, a Veterinarian Stories of Love, Loss, and Hope. Tell us a little bit about the book and how it all came about. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so, so the book is a memoir, and it's a story of my life, which is fairly interesting, but probably not as interesting as the patients that are in my book. So I take my story from Hereford, which is on the Welsh border in Britain, all the way to Philadelphia and then Baltimore and then San Diego, California. And I collect stories along the way, if you like. So each one of the chapters of my book is focused on an animal or sometimes one of my pets, either a patient or a pet, that has changed my life in some way. And so each one of those stories tells the biggest story of what it means to be a veterinarian and also a little bit about the story of my life. That's fascinating. When collecting these stories, I mean, did you have a grandiose idea years and years ago to keep a journal of uh, some of the more intriguing uh, stories? Or was it a matter of uh, they've ingrained themselves so heavily that, that it was fairly easy to pull from? Yes, definitely the latter. So one, I began writing about now five or six years ago, mainly because I've always enjoyed words. Words are one of my favorite things. And so I started writing. And when I first began writing, I was fairly sure that I wasn't going to write about being a veterinarian. <laughs> that was the one topic I decided I wasn't going to write about. And of course, as all good stories do, the, the real story, which was the story of becoming a veterinarian, uh, grabbed me and wouldn't let me go. And so as I started to formulate that story, I realized that there were these patients that even after 10, 15 years refused to to let me go as well. And so those were some of the animals that have made it into the book. 
Very good. And then reflecting back on those stories of the particular animals that are in the book, is it something you had to go back and uh, do a little bit more research on to make sure you had enough content? And then how did the uh, human companions of those animals come into play? Did you uh, have to reach back out to them after the, all these years to uh, sort of get their perspective on things or at least get a, a refresher on uh, everything? I did do a lot of research. And so what I'd like to do in this book and what I think makes it hopefully really enjoyable to read is bringing in a lot of additional information that takes the case as a jumping point, but then goes on to explore other avenues of veterinary medicine. So for example, there's a chapter where we talk, where I talk more specifically about the economics of owning a pet. There's a chapter where I look at the transmission of diseases in dogs that are brought from other countries into the U.S., I talk about rabies. So there are a number of different topics that I go in and I research more throughout the book. And so that actually was more how the uh, overarching theme of the book came about with regards to the human companions of my, of my animals that star in the book. They definitely feature quite prominently. I actually didn't go back and talk to people some of which it, it's been over 10 years since I actually saw the pet. So mm-hmm. there's sort of been a pretty big gap in the time frame there. And I wanted to, I felt that it was important to retell it from my perspective as a veterinarian. And, and so I wanted to bring that out to the fore as, as you know, sort of my perspective of, of how we treated these cases and how these, these things went. And so that's sort of why I, I kind of kept my case re- research more into my own experience. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, then talk about the experience. Here you are. uh, You're from the other side of the pond from the UK, (laughs) and then you make your way over to one coast, East Coast, and then made your way over to the West Coast. How did you look at that from a veterinarian's perspective? We'll step aside from the author perspective because we'll come back to that. But from a veterinarian perspective, how do you see things that have changed and progressed here, both in the United States and in the UK? And what do you see as maybe some of the big differences on veterinarian care in the UK compared to uh, what we see here in the US? Yeah, I think that veterinary medicine in the last 10, now really to 20 years, has just advanced in ways that just would have been inconceivable when I was at vet school. So I started vet school in 1994, I think it was. So compared to what we can do these days, there's a really stark contrast. A lot of the technologies were there back then, so 20 years ago, but they weren't as they are now. So for example, you know, the veterinary school that I was at, which was the Royal Veterinary College in London, we had a CT scanner that we would use occasionally, and we had an MRI scanner that we would use occasionally. And these days, you know, those are imaging modalities that we use sometimes multiple times a day in a specialty hospital to figure out what's going on with our patients. And so that's really incredible how we've really leveraged that, those imaging modalities to figure out more about our patients and about their health. And then things like interventional radiology, which means using techniques like they do in people to place stents in blood vessels and other things like that, like they do in people who have a heart attack. That technology has really advanced in the last 10 or so years. When I was first at the University of Pennsylvania in 2000, 
those technologies were just starting to be available. And, and these days, you know, 17 years later, the massive availability of, of those kind of treatments that can really help our, our pet family members feel better and live longer than they ever have done before. And with respect to the UK versus America, there are quite some interesting contrasts. And one of the ones I found most fascinating when I first came to the US was that a lot of the pet owners in the UK have pet health insurance, which is something that has really only been the last maybe even five years over here in the US that people have started to get on board with that. And so that's something that I think is really interesting that the health insurance has taken longer over here to really find some traction. I'm really pleased that that's starting to happen now because it means that we can help animals more and we can do more things. But that was one of the things that struck me the most, even 17 years ago now, that was a real difference when I first came over here. Yeah, and I, and I find it fascinating. I mean, I've, pet insurance has uh, saved us financially for years because I think we were sort of, uh, for myself being part of the industry, was more aware of it and so thus took advantage of it for my own personal aspect. But even today, I'm mm-hmm. sort of uh, now teaching people more about that, making them more aware. And uh, I think it's help, helpful in some degree that some of the early insurance companies that took on the uh, veterinarian care are now, for good or bad, being purchased by the larger insurance companies here in the state. Mm-hmm. which gives them better marketing leverage. But obviously, I think the, the bigger guys out there are now stepping forward and saying, There's, here's an opportunity because this is a you know, multi-billion dollar market. Absolutely. As our pets are really family members and as medical advances are progressing so rapidly in the veterinary field, I definitely think that pet insurance is something that I would recommend to any owner who has a pet, because it's something which can really make a difference. We never expect for those sometimes catastrophic, terrible things to happen and to have the knowledge that you can do that without having to worry about where the money is going to come from is is so important. I really think it's life-changing in some cases. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly on that. Well, do you see the uh, the trends in addition to the uh, insurance coverage? Do you feel, just based on your, your past experience and what you're still uh, keeping, I'm assuming you keep track of your colleagues in the UK, mm-hmm. do you see their advances and their opportunities and how they treat the animals more progressive than what we do here? Or is it uh, just a different type of uh, availability or culture? I do think that the culture is a little bit different. I think that in the UK, for example, there are only six veterinary schools. So it's a much smaller place. And so the availability of specialty care is progressing in the UK, but probably at a slower rate than it is over here. And it wasn't unusual when I was at the Royal Veterinary College in London to see people who'd driven three or four hours to get to the specialty hospital to get that care that they needed, which is a little bit different than it is here. And we're super lucky in Southern California because we have a lot of veterinary specialty hospitals around. And so people don't have to travel as far to get that next tier up of treatment when they need it. So that's something that I think has definitely changed. I do think that I still often read some of the literature that comes out of the UK and um, I have attended some conferences back home as well as a good excuse to also visit some family. <laughs> um, and that's something which I think that the the trends are similar. And I definitely think that the overarching movement of veterinary medicine in a forward uh, way and in a positive way is definitely occurring in both, in both the US and the UK. 
there are definitely some differences in medications. And a lot of that, interestingly, is from a legislative perspective. So Mm -hmm. the laws that govern medication usage for animals in the UK are very different to those in the US. And so there is, is a more strict regulation in the UK, which means that sometimes we're not able to use drugs that would be very easy for me to use in the US. And so that's quite an interesting diversity that I, I know it, it's in place to try and protect animals, but I think sometimes that ends up being to their detriment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's very interesting you say that because I think uh, I would hazard to guess a lot of um, human companions, as I call them, pet owners, would see that the opposite, uh, viewing uh, the UK and European countries being more progressive and more lenient. At least we like to believe that when it comes to human drugs, testing different things where the FDA may put a little bit tighter leash on it over here. So it's very fascinating to me to hear that it is possibly the opposite comparing the UK to the United States. Yeah. And the interesting thing that I think a lot of people don't always realize about veterinary medicine is that it's probably, and this is a bit of a wild guess, but probably 70% or more of the medications that we use on a regular basis in veterinary medicine are actually human drugs. We have very few veterinary specific drugs and that is changing. And we are seeing more drugs coming out as Pet human companions and, and pets are so important in our lives. And I think with the drive for human companions wanting more for their pets, I think that that is really changing that. But with regards to the, the ability to prescribe human medications here, I, I have very few restrictions on my ability to do that in the U.S., whereas in the U.K., there are some fairly tight restrictions that mean you have to go through a very strict sequence of of medication sort of approval before you can consider prescribing a human medication. Okay, that makes sense. So, and I think it's fascinating what you also said about the, uh, and I, I see this trend coming about as well uh, with the specialty veterinarian clinics, the veterinarian hospitals. You know, typically, you know, I'm in Georgia. So, typically in the mm-hmm. past, you know, we have some great specialty uh, hospitals here in the greater Atlanta area, but typically in the past, and, and it holds true for a lot of states here in the United States, uh, the fact that if you wanted a specialty doctor or something of this sort, you had to go to a training hospital, you had to go to a university, which often took, you know, many, many hours if you had one even available Mm -hmm. to you. It is changing slowly here, but uh, probably not as progressive as what you see in in California. Yes, I think that you're absolutely right about that. I mean, even when I finished my, so as an internal medicine specialist, I finished my residency in 2003. And then when I was going into private practice, there were there was maybe one or two hospitals in each major metropolitan area. And now that increase is, is really significant, which is great. But you're right, there are still definitely areas of the country that are underserved. And of course, Southern California has the advantage of the sunshine. So <laughs> it's not too hard to find people who want to work here. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, Susie, I'll throw a ringer in here at you. You went from a rainy country to uh, the East Coast, which has rain and snow, and then suddenly you made it out to the West Coast. I wonder what you were thinking. <laughs> 
I know. It's really weird, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to come back with author Susie Fincham Gray to talk to her a little bit more about her book. But I also want to talk to Susie about her writing in general. Uh, There's a unique twist. Not only is she a top-notch veterinarian specialist, but she has something else under her sleeve. We're going to talk about that when we come back from the break. So everybody hang tight. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Pick up two bottles of liquor chops. Get the third bottle free. New improved liquor chops with omega-6, omega-3, vitamin E, and now six extra direct-fed microbials. Even better for the digestive tract and immune system. And dogs love it. Try Lico Chops. Buy two, get one free. This is Henry Lukasiewicz for Dynavite. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. Dot com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. We're talking to uh, author and veterinarian Susie Fincham Gray about her book, uh, My Patients and Other Animals, a Veterinarian's Stories of Love, Loss, and Hope. Now, Susie, with the book that you have out there, when people read through it and love all the stories, love the background, all the research you did and all the knowledge you bring to it, at the end of the day, when they get back to the last page, what do you hope they take away from it? That's something that's been really important to me as I've gone on this journey of writing this book because I've always thought about as I'm writing it, who I'm writing it for and what I want people to take from this book. And I think that the thing that I really would like is for people to maybe see veterinary medicine in a new way and maybe think about the jobs that we as veterinarians do in a slightly different manner. And also to view the health decisions that we make for those that we love, whether they're human or non-human animals, especially when they can't advocate for themselves. That's something that I would really like people to to think about or to, to be stimulated to think about after they read the book. And I think you did a great job with that in the book. You know, it gives us a lot of knowledge, a lot of takes on uh, the industry as a whole, your viewpoint from a, a veterinarian standpoint, as well as, you know, some lovely and heartfelt heart <laughs> tear jerking stories <laughs> in there that uh, combines it all together. Because I, I think that, uh, you know, to me, I work with a lot of veterinarians and uh, I pay for a lot of veterinarians. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, <laughs> that being said, I, I know the job is very rewarding. But but it's extremely challenging and trying to separate the science, uh, your medical training from the compassion part of it. I would imagine, you know, trying to decide when you have to combine those and separate those is a huge challenge. It is absolutely. And, and particularly early in my career is when I just had come out of my residency. It was, it was really a, a true challenge at that time. And it, it continues to be to somewhat different degrees today. It's true. It's it's very much, there's so much, it's always classic when you talk about medicine being art and science combined. And, and absolutely, I most firmly believe that about veterinary medicine as well. And I think what's interesting is what the medicine tells you versus what that empathetic, more artistic side of your brain tells you may not always be the same thing. And so trying to decide how you balance those two to make 
the most difference for your patient and for your patient's family is what's really important to me and has become increasingly a real focus for me as my career has progressed over the years. Yeah, and I would imagine, you know, I you know, applaud you in the fact that, you know, in the early days, I know it was really challenging. And then you have to go into some sort of a rhythm, thought pattern, something. I don't know what the word would be that I'm looking for here, but, you know, being able to handle it, all the ups and downs on a daily basis. But also, uh, do you find it difficult to keep that separated at times? Because I do know, no offense here, but for veterinarians have been doing it for many, many, many years. I would see it being uh, very easy to become jaded or very black and white when it comes to uh, care of animals, especially in those when you have to make those tough decisions. I think that's a, a good point that you bring up. And I also think it's something that is increasingly now getting attention in sort of the veterinary world, because I think increasingly over the past couple of years, people have begun to realize that there is a lot of you know, compassion fatigue, jaded for want of a better word. It happens a lot in veterinary medicine because I think we, most of the veterinarians that I know are very dedicated to their cases. They think about them when they're not in the hospital and I know that I'm guilty of that. And so that line between your sort of your personal and then your work life gets very, very blurred which is great and also not great in kind of similar portions, I would say. So I think that there are now some strategies coming about where trying to delineate more clearly between what we do in the hospital and what we do away from the hospital, I think is very important to try to maintain that ability to come at each case with a new set of eyes and a fresh outlook and not get worn down by it because the compassion fatigue is certainly a big, big problem in, in veterinary medicine that has been brought to light in the past few years. Yeah, and I'll ask you this, on an ongoing basis, you know, obviously when you're in vet school, you take classes that not only teach you the medicine part of it, but teaches you how to deal with the stress of it all, the the, uh, the day-to-day activities and, and trying to make the right decisions. Do those type of classes and, and reinforcement come later once you're a, uh, a, <laughs> a veteran veterinarian, we'll put it that way? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, honestly, when I was at vet school, I didn't get a single class on how to talk to an owner, how to communicate wow. well, all the bedside manner stuff, which is really essential and as important as the medicine when you're caring for someone's loved ones. And so that's something which I think is still somewhat lacking in our training. I meet a lot of young vets who are fresh out of school or maybe fresh out of an internship. And I think that the communication aspect of it is what they often struggle with the most. And it's something that I think you can take classes on it, absolutely. And I think more classes would be a good thing. But I also think it's one of those things that you learn as you go. And you have to find that rhythm and you have to find that balance that feels right for you. And what might work for one of my colleagues in sense of you know, style and how they approach cases and how they approach communication is not necessarily the same as I would do it. And that's fine as long as the communication is advocating for our patients in the best way possible. Yeah, very good. So uh, pick your brain one last time here on uh, veterinarian mm-hmm. care. Then I'll get back into the book and your writing. Holistic approaches, obviously, they're getting a, a lot more attention, rightfully so, in my opinion. Options that are not what I would deem traditional, but uh, mm-hmm. are supplemental, perhaps, to uh, helping an animal out. What's your take on that? What are you seeing as far as uh, trends are concerned? And is this something that can be a holistic approach, be blended nicely with a more, say, traditional? approach? 
I definitely think that there's a place for the combination of the two in in caring for for the animals that we love. I think I use a lot of I personally I'm not certified in acupuncture, but I feel like acupuncture is very much a complementary healthcare that can really benefit some of my more geriatric patients who have multiple health problems and I don't hesitate to refer my cases for acupuncture because I think that's something that can be truly beneficial. I think that there are a there is a lot of information, almost overwhelming amounts of information, particularly online, about different holistic treatments for our pets. And I think that that's something which we just need to be aware of the possible side effects as well. So, for, for example, some of the herbal supplements that are available, I should probably say herbal. That's how you guys say it, right? <laughs> that's <laughs> um, right. The, the, some of the herbal supplements that are available may actually have things that may not be safe for animals in the same way that they are safe for people. And so making sure that you're talking to somebody who is really a, almost a specialist in that area. And there are a lot of uh, holistic practitioners out there now who have a lot of experience with doing acupuncture and, and all these complementary treatments, I think is, is really important. But I definitely think absolutely that there's a place for them both to sit really nicely together to give our animals the very, very best care and help that we can. There you go. So uh, don't try to be Dr. Google, we'll say. Go do your research, find out about it, and then go to a specialist or, or a, you know, uh, Susie, in this case, to find out more about uh, best approaches to help your animal. We'll, we'll put it that way. Absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Google is not my favorite doctor. <laughs> uh, no, no, not at all. Very handy, but very dangerous, too. So you got to be careful. Yes. got to be careful. All right. So I put a little teaser out there, and I always – this is fascinating. I'm, I'm glad you put this in your bio. Not only – are you a, a veterinarian and a specialist in your field, but also you hold an MFA from the University of California, Riverside in writing. How did that come into play? Was it a chicken and egg? Which which was the chicken? Which was the egg? You know, as far as your degree in, as a veterinarian compared to as a uh, degree to, uh, as a writer. And then how do you see those two coming together other than obviously this fantastic book? Definitely the, the veterinary medicine was the egg maybe <laughs> it depends how you look at it i'm not sure that's <laughs> a right. good question right so i qualified from veterinary school in 2000 and i actually didn't get my mfa in creative writing until 2015 so just over 2 years ago and what happened was i had always been very determined and once you read the book you'll see that from a very early age i wanted to be a veterinarian and so i was absolutely dead set on that course for my life and it got to a point in my life where I started to realize that maybe that I should have some other interests as well and sort of fulfill my life in other ways that weren't only veterinary medicine. So I sort of began writing mainly, honestly, just for fun. And as I'm the type of person who, once they get an idea about something, I tend to <laughs> get pretty attached to it. I decided to look at some different MFA programs and I actually enrolled in a low residency MFA, which means that I could practice as a veterinarian at the same time as writing, which almost drove me crazy, but not quite. <laughs> and so I began the MFA really with no intention of, of anything coming out of it until I started to realize that this was a story that wouldn't let me go and that I really wanted to tell. And so I was very fortunate to get a really great agent, get a proposal, bought for the book before it was even written. And then the last 
two and a half years I've been writing the book with my publishing team at Spiegel and Grau, and it's been an amazing journey, but 100% a worthwhile one that I would do again in a heartbeat. So now I've just got to figure out what the second book is going to be about. <laughs> <laughs> and have they signed up for the second book? That's the most not important yet, part. Not yet. Uh, not you, yet. But I'm, I'm hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping you'd get them <laughs> on the hook. I an idea. Yeah, because it was pretty brilliant. You know, get them on the hook ahead of time, then uh, then write the book. Then they're just harassing you to get the book ready and <laughs> out the door. So right, yes, that's that, it's kind of a double edged sword that one because then you have to kind of meet all the deadlines, that's it, that's <laughs> which is it. a good thing because definitely a good thing for me to be put under the thumb to do something. That's that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, switching gears, you know, you decide to get your degree and and uh, you know focus on your writing as sort of a an outlet or a pleasure or uh, rounding out your uh, your cranium a little bit more than just veterinarian medicine. How have you found this whole process? And truthfully, I, I can we can delete this out from your editor so they don't have to hear this part if you don't want to. But <laughs> how is that process? <laughs> is it everything? Of course, it's everything and more than you ever expected it to be. But did you imagine it would take you that long to write the book and then all the processes and, and things and the flow and the editing that has to go along with it? Yeah, it's a completely different world. And so as a veterinarian, I understand how veterinary medicine works really well. I know how A gets to B gets to C gets to D. And so to start on this new adventure with writing a book, it was just like stepping into a different world, really. It was it was sort of like speaking a language that I didn't even speak. And so that in itself at times was just so exciting. And then at other times was so frustrating because I, I didn't always understand <laughs> what the next step was. And it was kind of like beginning again, right from the start of being at vet school for the first day, but in a completely different arena. So yeah, it was, it was an amazing journey. Definitely the number of times that I ended up writing the book was probably four or five at least. <laughs> it just going through all the edits and all the changes and the book as it started out in the very, very beginning compared to where it is now is a completely different animal. It's a completely different thing, but it's the thing that I'm really proud of and it's something that I, I really believe in. And so all the ups and downs along the way always I always try to think of it as making everything stronger, ultimately. <laughs> Trying to take a positive skin, spin on it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. You know, and you're right. You know, the process, you know, for my listeners, they've heard this from me a thousand times. It's, it's very exciting. But it's very time-consuming, and it is extreme yeah. ups and downs. I mean, you're you have to come up with a great idea, and then you've got to pitch it and sell it, you know, or or find an agent to do that for you, and then you get somebody to say, okay, yeah, we'll publish that. But you know, you've got to change this, got to do that. How about the different mm -hmm. title? And then, by the way, can we get it in like three months? And you say no, you need, you need a little more time. <laughs> and then you get them the whole manuscript, and then all of a sudden you think, wow, I'm done. All I have to do is pick a cover and. Get Good to go. It's like no, we need to rework it, re, you know, redo the thing. So it really is an extreme roller coaster. It's so exciting when it's done, though. I would imagine you, that how thrilled you are about having it out there. Yes, I mean, it seemed there were definitely points along the journey that I felt I was never going to get to that end point. <laughs> there were definitely places where I felt like I was so deep in the hole that I was never going to come out and see the daylight again and actually this book be a finished thing. But it did. It all, you know, and, and so many people told me that too along the way when I was sort of, you know, despairing over the fact that the book was never going to get written and I was never going to get through this really tough part of writing. And then suddenly it kind of figures itself out. It's sort of amazing that way. But yeah, it's, 
yeah, writing a book is a very difficult thing to do, even when you know what you want to, you think you know what you want to write and you have it all set out. I think when it actually comes down to it and sitting in front of that blank page or that blank screen day after day and having to fill it is, can be intimidating sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, once you have it, and at least for me, I, I tend to find a, a rhythm. You know, once I get a rhythm going, then I, I just go after it. Getting started is yeah. the, the, the challenge for me. And I think you're, you know, what you'd mentioned earlier, having deadlines is always a good idea because that, that's sort of how I made it barely through uh, university is <laughs> knowing that there was, there was going to be a deadline on something. So I had to get it done. Yes. So as a writer and put together this book or anything else you're writing, um, how is your process? Are you one of those that get up at you know five in the morning and start hammering away at something because you have to go into, uh, into the clinic a little bit later? Or is it more of you're a late night person? Is it uh, I want to get 5,000 words done no matter what before I leave this desk? How's your process? I have tried various processes. I'm not sure I've nailed one down yet, but it would be my, <laughs> my, my process. I've definitely done the early morning thing. I've also done the late night thing. I've done the shut myself in the library, you know, in the, in the local library on the weekend thing. I have tried to do the word count thing, you know, uh-huh. a thousand words a day or, and I think that I've dropped that because it just doesn't seem to work very well for me. I think I have to think about something a lot and work it out a little bit in my head before I start writing it. But ultimately, I have to just sit down and write it. And sometimes I find that I can write a thousand words in, I don't know, two, you know, an hour even. And sometimes it's like a hundred words and it's just the most painful process ever. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the mistakes that I made early on when I was first starting to write was I would really be very critical of what I was writing as I was writing it. And so mm-hmm. editing as I was writing, which I think really bogs you down yes. and gets, it got me stuck. It got me absolutely stuck. And so I've sort of got to remind myself often to give myself the permission to just write whatever down. And it's a first draft and first drafts quickly become 12th drafts. <laughs> and kind of giving myself that permission to just write whatever it is that I need to write to get it written and then go back a second time. And I actually really enjoy editing. Editing is really fun. I, I feel like that's where the real work gets done in a way. I, I feel like, you know, the edits are where you really get the true essence of the piece out once you see what where your mind has taken you on the page. And so that's something that I really enjoy is, is the editing. So I try to always remind myself of that when I'm sitting in front of a blank page. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a good point. I'm definitely not on board with you on that. Uh, no, I'm not an editor. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> by any means. But I found when writing, that's if I've learned anything, I don't think there is any right or wrong answer. You have to really figure out what works for you and uh, let it mm-hmm. flow, let it go from there. But the big thing is don't edit as you go along. Don't even, you know, just get in your flow, start typing, and then worry about all the typos and the errors and the editing and stuff uh, a little bit later on. Because you're right. If you if you sit there, and especially if you have like a, a Word document that's doing autocorrect for you and you see these little red lines come up underneath the words because you've mistyped something, you know, it's your human nature, I think, to go back, you know, to go and immediately correct that. But no, keep pushing through. You can edit later. And believe me, no matter how clean your manuscript is, it's going to edit at least half a dozen times anyway. So it just doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, uh, we're coming into the show today. Uh, where can people find out more about uh, the book, My Patients and Other Animals, as well as uh, any uh, events you're going to be attending or any of the uh, book signings, et cetera? 
Yes, I have. There are two really good places to find out a little bit more about the book and about me. One of them is Facebook, although I know that these days that's maybe not a good thing to say. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, my Facebook page is Susie Fincham Gray author. And so I would love if you would like or follow that page and you can get up to date information on my appearances. And then also I like to share some fun animal articles that I found interesting as well to kind of keep people entertained so that there's some kind of funny stuff on there as well. And then my website is suziefinchamgray.com. And so again, I have uh, links to appearances on there and a blog, which I have done a terrible job of keeping up recently, but there is a blog on there and some information about the book and where you can get it as well. All right, fantastic. We'll make sure we get those posted. You can follow Susie on uh, Facebook and also uh, go to her website and keep track of everything going on, get a chance to meet her. And uh, everybody, just definitely pick up the book. It's a fascinating read. It's interesting. It's intriguing. It gives you some ins and outs of the veterinarian uh, practice as well as um, some heartfelt stories. And uh, what's good, the book's called uh, My Patients and Other Animals, uh, Veterinarian Stories of Love, Loss, and Hope. By author and veterinarian and master of all writing things, uh, Susie Fincham Gray. <laughs> Susie, thanks for uh, thank coming so on much. the show today. I appreciate it so much, and we'll look forward to keeping track of what's going on and, and hearing from me some more down the road. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, we're uh, coming to the end of the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I want to thank the sponsors and producers for making this show possible. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas, or people you want to hear from uh, and be interviewed on the show, you can email me at PetLifeRadio.com, and I'll be glad to answer your questions, entertain your comments, and bring on the people we hear from most. So until next time, read a great story about the animals in your life, put in a blog, an article, or in a book, and who knows, you may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Everybody have a great day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.